0: In January 2016, a team of reporters and photographers at the Wisconsin State Journal embarked on a nine-month effort to look deeply at homelessness in Dane County. The series, told in four chapters, appeared in 34 articles from June to September 2016, titled Homeless in Madison, a City Challenged. It questioned assumptions about Madison, exploded myths about the homeless, and amplified a public conversation about what to do. Today, we are joined by three of the project's leaders, Wisconsin State Journal reporters Dean Moseman and Doug Erickson, and chief photographer Steve Apps. Dean has covered city government for the State Journal since 1997. Doug has worked at the State Journal since 1999 and currently covers K-12 education and religion. Steve started as a staff photographer at the State Journal in 1997 and became chief photographer in 2010. Then we hear from Heidi Wegleitner. She's a Dane County Board Supervisor and a public interest attorney representing low-income tenants in eviction cases and subsidized housing disputes. This forum was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County's Lively Issues Luncheon, held on January 14, 2017, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. First, we hear from Doug Erickson.
1: Thank you so much, uh, first of all, for just caring enough about this topic of homelessness to want us to join you today. We really had two primary goals going into it. Of course, we wanted to tell the stories of homeless people. But beyond that, we do hope idealistically to bring about some systemic changes, some long-term improvements for the plight of the homeless. For me, there were a couple reasons why I thought it made sense for us to land on that topic. The first is that we as reporters had begun to realize that the perception of the homeless problem in Madison really wasn't the reality and how this developed really if you go back to 2011 you may remember the Occupy Wall Street movement um, that was all about income inequality and corporate influence in society and of course there were local offshoots of that including an Occupy Madison movement that was very vibrant and included an encampment that moved around the county for several months and I wrote quite a lot about that encampment And on any given night, there would be 50 or 60 people sleeping outside in this encampment, and a good half of them were homeless. And that stood to reason, because if you're talking about income inequality, of course, these are the people experiencing it uh, most severely. And then about a year ago last fall there was a group of homeless people who were sleeping overnight on the front steps of our city county building which is sometimes called the front porch of the city and that became as you know a very controversial issue and ultimately city and county leaders decided that for a variety of reasons including safety they couldn't keep allowing that and so they banned sleeping on the front porch so those people were displaced so those two things the Occupy Madison movement and the front porch really put homelessness in front of the community. But we knew as reporters that the the stereotype perhaps that people were getting in the homeless was not the reality. That while the people that you see um, you know, when you're walking around the Capitol or on State Street who are sleeping out in public, while their stories are, are completely valid and need to be told too, they're a very small slice of the overall totality of the homeless population. I uh, cover K-12 education, and so I knew that on any given day, we have hundreds of children in our school district showing up homeless. So by some counts even, families and children are really the majority of the homeless. Yet it it, it came to be that the face of the homeless population here was really this very visible uh, group that was part of these encampments. So that was really one reason we wanted to um, help challenge that stereotype. And then secondly, once you know that there are literally thousands uh, estimates of homeless people in Dane County, the question becomes, why is that? And so what we hope to show in our stories, what we tried to focus on all the time were the gaps in the system so that there could be some sort of systemic change uh, to come of the series. I think I'll turn it over to Dean. He's going to talk a little about, once we landed on the topic, then what our approach was.
2: Once we decided on this topic, the challenge before us was, how do you do it? And one of the first things that we did was acknowledge that we needed to learn a lot about it. And the first thing that we did was we decided to bring in a group of advocates um, to have a kind of open candid conversation with not only Doug and I but our editors and tap their knowledge about what would be important to say and to explore in this kind of series and from that we were able to spring and tap into the community further we um, were lucky enough in terms of timing to um, participate in what's called a point in time count. I don't know if many of you are familiar with that or not, but it's actually a time once or twice a year where people physically go out and count how many homeless people are in our community and they do that at night. And so we tagged along with them and we able to meet our first set of homeless people um, out in the woods, downtown, Another thing that was really helpful to us was um, the advocates in the community were also interested in doing a new homeless plan for Dane County. And there was a set of meetings that occurred with how many hours? Probably six, seven hours a day for about four days um, where we got to hear and meet, hear people talk about homelessness, what are the issues, and um, meet people who were able to connect us to homeless people.
1: And we knew we wanted to populate our stories with a lot of real people. And one of the unique aspects of this project was that we were going to do it over a long period of time. We knew it would be most of the year. And so what we saw as the value of that was being able to follow people's stories for a long period of time not just, you know, go interview them, write the story, and it's done. And we thought there would be real value in helping readers see, you know, over months and in real time how some of these stories play out. It was one of the challenges, though, too, in asking people to be in the newspaper, because We knew there were a couple motivations for people to say yes to us. And I should say, you know, this was a really big ask for us. And I hope you, as readers, appreciate that and are as grateful to these people who ended up in the series as we are. It's never easy to ask someone, regardless of the topic, you know, share your story for tens of thousands of people. But these are people who are, you know, hopefully it's the worst time in their lives that things will improve, but they're very vulnerable. And so it it was a lot to ask of them. And we asked that they use their full names so that um, people knew that, you know, these were real people and and we would have to photograph them and we would have to be really honest, too, about their past. Um, Many of them had evictions or criminal records or substance abuse in their past. So we were asking a lot of them. And we knew there would be a couple motivations that people would have to say yes to us. And I think the primary one we found was just that people wanted to tell their story. And, you know, that's something inside all of us, I think, is to be heard. And particularly when you're in perhaps a population like this that's often um, not heard or marginalized even, it was a real motivating factor uh, for people. They just wanted to be able to talk and have their stories be heard. Secondly, though, we knew that some people would... um, hope to be helped by being in the paper. And we didn't see that as a negative motivation. Um, there are really generous readers out there, and we knew that there would be some that would wanna help these people once they read about it. And you know, when you're in such a desperate situation, especially if you're a parent with homeless children, of course you're going to do anything that you think might help you um, get out of that situation. Now, the challenge, like I was saying, with that motivation was, um, we're, we were asking some, of, a lot of these people um, to have us follow them for months and months and months, and the story actually wouldn't come out, maybe until their situation was completely changed or it already had been resolved. Or in the case of one family that I covered, they would already moved back to Chicago three months earlier by the time their story appeared in the paper. So we had to ask them um, to stay with us for a long, long period of time, and that that instant sort of motivation of possibly being helped out of their situation really wasn't there.
2: We did something that a, cuts a bit across the grain of um, what some reporters do and that is um, whenever we um, met folks who were going to be part of the project we gave them a chance to interview us and ask us questions about what we were doing, why we were doing it, um, what our motivation was, and then we also actually sometimes almost tried to talk them out of being part of the project. We would say, tell them the reality of what it's like to you know, put your name out in front of 100,000 people and that we can't take that away once that occurs.
1: Yeah, it was particularly difficult in the case of the homeless children I wrote about. It's one thing to ask an adult to put his or her life out there, but to ask a parent then to allow us to write about their five-year-old son in the case of the homeless kindergartner that I wrote about, that, that was um, a really huge ask. And so like Dean's saying, our first goal was to do no harm. And one small example of that I can give you is I wrote about a woman named Cheryl Martin, who is 57. And when I met her, she was working two jobs part-time, but for a total of 52 hours a week So she was an assistant shift manager at an Arby's restaurant in town. And then she would go right from there and be a custodian overnight at East Town Mall. And we, like I said, we tried to protect people so that we didn't hurt them in any way. And so when I was writing about her, I I went to her and I said can we put the names of your employers in the paper, Arby's and Easttown Mall? And at first she was like, oh, sure, you know, my managers love me. I'm doing really good work there. They'll be fine with it. Well, you know, knowing what I know about how these things work, I said, maybe you better go back and ask them specifically. And, you know, it turned out they did not want their names associated with a story where it would look where it was that their own employees were homeless. So you know, in that sort of case, we could just say that she was the assistant shift manager at a fast food restaurant, and then she was a custodian at a large shopping mall. So there are ways that we could try to help protect people, and we did that whenever we could. And that particularly comes into play a lot with the the photos, and maybe Steve could talk a little about some of the challenges with the photography on a, a large project like this.
0: You're listening to a forum on homelessness in Dane County, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are State Journal reporters Dean Moseman and Doug Erickson and Chief Photographer Steve Apps, along with Heidi Wegleitner, Dane County Board Supervisor, and a public interest attorney representing low-income tenants in eviction cases and subsidized housing disputes.
3: I'm the Chief Photographer, and I'm in some of the budget meetings, and I heard rumors about this big project that we were going to do. And we've done projects in the past, and usually they're simple, you know, a couple months of the likes to work, and a lot of times there are some pretty good ideas. And But they've never really, in the 20 years that I've been there, they've never been big. And all of a sudden we said, this is something we want to do, you know, four-part series. We want to take two reporters that are very busy on their daily—you know, daily beats We're taking them off their beats for nine months, and it's like, wow, I've never—that's—that is a commitment to this story. And I was thinking, this is fantastic, and I was also thinking, this is a nightmare, (laughs) because this is, you know, 2015, 2016, or I guess we're 16, and you know, back in 2007 and 2008, we had seven staff photographers, a photo editor, and an assistant photo editor which was really easy to assign a photographer you know go ahead take as much time as you need but this is 2016 2017 and we have myself who was titled chief photographer but i'm really the photo editor and i'm involved in a lot of meetings every day and three very very talented staff photographers and so knowing that uh, logistically was going to be a little bit tricky the project was so excited, we said, okay. And plus, the top management said, whatever it takes, which made things easy for these guys, but very difficult for features, sports, any other department because they come to me and say, hey, we have this assignment next Thursday. Can you do it? Nope, nope. And I got pretty used to just saying, nope, can't do it. And it's, uh... but these guys would come to me who, they were very modest about this. The legwork, the interviews that involved getting their stuff ready before the photographer even stepped into this project is just monumental. The hours and hours they spent vetting people, getting subjects comfortable, knowing that you understand that we're going to have a photographer out, we're going to be taking photographs. At every situation that, you know, a lot of, most of the time when these subjects we photographed, they came at least the first time to you know for introductions. And a lot of times photographers just took it upon themselves to go on their own once the introductions were made. In almost every case, people were comfortable being photographed. They were excited about the project. They understood what we were doing. So we'll give you kind of an overview of some of the days in the series.
1: But we'll talk about a few of the installments uh, that were part of the series.
3: This was the young boy that... Uh, ended up moving to Chicago unfortunately the newspaper has a limited amount of space and we sat around looking trying to figure out which pictures is for this package you know our photographers are just incredible when they in the way they handle things like this they had to sneak to this sneak into this hotel room because we did not want the management to know this woman had multiple family members staying in in the hotel
1: yeah there were 11 family members in one hotel room. And that is not an uncommon situation in Madison or other cities that the motels become essentially the homeless shelters.
2: This was an interesting piece uh, because it's uh, an example of how the, the flexibility we gave ourselves in doing a rolling series rather than traditionally you'll see some, a project like this where you'll see six, seven, eight days in a row of stories. And we chose to, um, run these over a series of months, and so our reporting was informing us as we were moving along. And for this day, the intent had been to do a piece on um, homeless unaccompanied youth. And I was doing the reporting on that, and I started to learn more about human trafficking and the connection between homeless youth and human trafficking. And we had still been looking at doing a main piece on youth with a what we call a sidebar on human trafficking, and then I had a um, probably a four-hour interview with uh, detective with the Madison Police and the uh, executive director of um, one of the agencies in town that um, works with these girls. And I emerged from that interview um, really angry and upset and feeling that we had to do something more about this. And so. That story became the the prime story on that day. Uh, What that did, though, was present challenges in how we photographed it and how we did the interviews with it. And this is um, one of the cases, actually, where we uh, did not identify um, the victim. Um, The girl, the blonde-haired girl that uh, Detective Maya is hugging there um, shared her story with us, which is just a horrific couple of years that she lived and um, maybe Steve could talk a little bit about um, how we went about getting these pictures
3: you know being a police officer in Madison as her words they're overworked they don't have the money to deal with the situation and she felt this was the way that she could do something about it by getting this issue with the newspaper Dean and I did a ride-along with her And she's pointing out, prostitute, prostitute, you know, this, drug dealer, drug dealer. They're in plain sight. If you did not know, you know, her pointing them out, you would think it's just people going about their everyday business. And uh, so it was her day off, even. And she's in flip-flops and shorts, and I, you know, it was my day off. And we used Dean's van, which is kind of funny, because, you know, we got a police officer, a photographer, you know, driving around Madison looking for drug deals and prostitutes <laughs> and
2: what, what typically happens is um, a, a young woman will have an issue at home and um, no place to go. Um, they will run away. Um, they often go to East Town Mall to the food court where um, there are um, pimps who are, will recognize the situation and um, meet them and offer them a place to stay, something to eat, and eventually that morphs into other things. And before they know it, these girls are um, trapped in these situations. Um, they're often um, given drugs, and if they're not addicted before what they were got, they, they become addicted. And so, um, you know, Detective Maya is very clear about Um, getting away from that terminology of prostitute in this kind of circumstance but it's really it's a a young girl who's a victim. Yeah I I made
3: the mistake at one time saying something like an escort she's very tersely victim. We're sitting in Dean's van detective Maya had her binoculars there was a car parked on the right hand side of that dumpster for a long time in the middle of the day and Dean and I will ask detective Maya what's going on there and she goes. I'm 100% sure there was this, there was some sexual stuff going on there for money. But and so we're trying to illustrate that type of topic without really illustrating it. And it's, it's I mean it's kind of hard to do. And so photographed the van with a very large telephoto lens. The person had got out of the car. I photographed all of that. So i there was I have 150 frames of the guy talking, the woman smiling, she, you know, doing all this stuff. He walks away. The car drives away. Maya ran the plate, which was came back to a seventy-five-year-old woman. This woman wasn't seventy-five years old. Just you know, being a seasoned detective, she was one hundred percent, ninety percent sure what happened. And so we brought this back to the, our you know our news meeting, and it said we're one hundred percent sure. This is an example of a paid-for-sex type of thing that goes on in the middle of the day at these East Side hotels, which happen all the time. And the discussion was, oh, we can't run that. After a number of meetings, a lot of frustration, calls to lawyers, lawyer bills, and further evaluation, said, sure, we can run the picture. And also, I forgot to say that we had made an agreement with the Madison Police Department that any photograph for this series we would run through them first, which is something we've would never, we never done before. There's never prior approval before publication. That's kind of one of the things that journalists have. But in this picture here, the young woman, this was a woman that she was concerned that she would be identified. And I took the picture and I showed her the back of the camera, are you okay with this? Yeah, that's, I'm fine, she was happy. And then I promised I'd destroy the, so I have no copy of it. Those are
1: just a couple examples of installments in the series. The final one, we went back and did brief updates on a lot of the major characters, people in our prior stories to let readers know what had happened to them during the months that we were with them. And then we also published a lot of recommendations about what might be a path forward to make some improvements.
0: You're listening to a forum on homelessness in Dane County, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are State Journal reporters Dean Moseman and Doug Erickson, and chief photographer Steve Apps. Now, Heidi Wegleitner is introduced by Dorothy Wheeler, chair of the League's program committee. Hello, I'm happy to introduce Heidi Uh, Heidi has worked for 11 years as a public interest attorney representing low-income tenants in eviction cases and subsidized housing disputes. In In 2012, she was elected to represent District 2 on the Dane County Board of Supervisors. Heidi currently serves on the board of the Homeless Consortium of Dane County. She is part of a national network of housing justice advocates working to decriminalize poverty and homelessness and advance housing as a human right.
4: Thank you. The problem is complicated, but in some ways, the solution is really simple, right? Folks need a place to call home. They need housing. Um, How we get there, the strategies um, we need, and and the solutions and the types of housing um, for different people experiencing homelessness can be very different and look very different. And so um, we are working hard as a homeless services consortium um, to to improve our, our response and our collaboration to address this problem. There's three main drivers of this issue. One is just a lack of resources, a lack of resources dedicated to providing um, affordable housing um, for low-income folks and a lack of resources um, for folks who are trying to afford their afford their housing, right? So um, here in, in Dane County, you need to make $15 an hour, essentially, to afford a one-bedroom unit. Um, HUD defines affordability as paying no more than about 30% of your monthly income towards a housing payment. So we have folks on the front line of serving homeless people in our shelters and in our our programs who are to be providing services to homeless folks who don't even make enough with their wage to afford a one-bedroom themselves. So one of our challenges in the consortium is really to, to increase the funding Going to these folks who are tasked with incredibly challenging work to in progressively engage folks sometimes who have a lot of housing barriers, um, and, and and make them feel supported and valued in their work so they stick around um, because we really we are trying to invest in training and these best practices and things like that, and yet the folks who many of the folks who are on the front lines can, are having their own struggles um, paying rent and. To give a little context, um, so I, my folks lived in a Section 8 um, rent assisted project when I, when I was born and until I was about in kindergarten and I was born in in 1979. In 1978, HUD funded um, low income housing programs at the, at the tune of 83 billion dollars. Okay. By 1983, that had fallen to 18 billion. And we've never recovered. Okay, at that same time you have, um, you know, deinstitutionalization happening, folks with disabilities, um, you know, being integrated into the community settings, and, and in the 80s we re- really see um, with the kind of divestment from affordable housing, modern homelessness um, coming. So we, we, don't, we don't have um, the scale of resources to, res- to respond to this problem like the country once did. Um, and and we're, we've seen for the last decades the, the results of that. Um, there's also a, a lack of services um, in our community, and I think um, other places in the country have, have more services, have more funding dedicated to supporting folks who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. Um, this is, you know, education. Tenant education, what rights and responsibilities are, is really important. Um, landlord education as well. It's also um, support, case management support for folks um, who, who have barriers, who need help stabilizing in housing or accessing that housing. Right now, the men in shelter, we have a, a, you know, a high um, population of single men and women who are homeless. Um, there's really no case management for those men in housing. Maybe one case manager, I think, at, at the uh, men's shelter to deal with hundreds Of homeless men so um, in a lot of ways they're on their own trying to navigate a difficult system to to get into housing while also just trying to meet their basic needs to survive Um, and then of course something that's really important to me is um, well in in other ways supports access to treatment right we need improved access to treatment we've seen a kind of decrease in in, and funding commitments local funding commitments for mental health services and that's a huge issue for folks, is having that, that treatment available when, when folks are ready to seek it. And then legal services. <laughs> I am one attorney for nine counties of low-income people who are facing a housing crisis. OK, that's a lot of folks, over, well over 100,000 folks who qualify for my you know, federally supported um, legal representation. And so, and I don't know, how many of you have read the book Evicted? A number of you. yes, a really compelling book from a fantastic researcher and UW alum Matt Desmond talks about how eviction is, you know, just like incarceration is locking up black men, evictions are locking out black women. And this is a huge problem in our community. And we work really hard for folks who are homeless to to get folks into housing, it's incredibly important that that we also support keeping them in housing. And your chances of staying in your housing and successfully defending yourself in eviction court, um, if you actually have an attorney who's trained to to help you with your case, you know, your your chances of of doing that go way up. So um, we do have a, a significant shortage of eviction defense lawyers, and and I would like to see more of that. Um, Kind of a a third big driver, I think, in in homelessness is kind of a lack of of protections, tenant protections, um, at the federal level, at the state level, and the local level. So, mostly, landlord-tenant law is a function of state statute, and with our federally subsidized housing, there's additional laws that um, go into play. In the 90s and 80s and 90s, with some of the kind of tough on crime and, and welfare um, reform, you saw a lot of new laws that made it a lot easier to get folks out of government subsidized housing. People were very concerned for good reasons about crime and things like that. But the, the response went kind of overboard with the one strike and you're out type philosophy. That really had a negative impact on innocent household members, a lot of the kids, a lot of the maybe grandmothers or or sisters or um, moms who didn't have anything to do with any of the criminal activity were all pushed out um, under these kind of tough-on-crime things, and and that's a that's a big problem, and, and having an attorney can help in some of those situations. Um, at the state level, we've seen um, changes in landlord-tenant law, significant changes in the last five years in a in a couple ways that have had an adverse impact on, on tenants and, and facilitate more evictions in our community and an increase in homelessness. And, and one of those is um, kind of taking away some of our local control to respond to this problem. Um, we had... Fair um, housing ordinances, um, both at the county level and at the city level, that protected people um, who have an arrest and conviction record, and it really limited the types of folks that you could discriminate against to folks who were um, convicted with a, a charge that you know could relate to housing within the last two years, but people who were just arrested or people with convictions that um, were older could not be denied just for that reason. Um, We have protections for folks who didn't have a social security number, didn't want to disclose a social security number, folks who, um, maybe immigrants. Um, We have protections for folks who, um, you know, didn't meet minimum income standards. The industry standard is, you know, you should pay three times, you should be able to afford three times your income. So you make... You know, the, the rent would be one-third of your monthly income. Again, that kind of affordability requirement we're talking about. Well, you know, if you're working poor, if you're um, disabled, if you're um, on a fixed income because you're on Social Security, that's very hard for you to meet that standard. So the city of Madison had some sensible ordinance that said, if you could prove that you could afford that because at the last place you rented, you afforded that and you weren't late on your rent and you can show a history of two years of paying rent at that income to rent ratio you can't be denied just for that reason um, but the state legislature said no we want to be able to control the screening criteria at the state level um, for what landlords can and cannot do in terms of screening folks so they took away a number of our um, local protections that um, were um, enacted to Um, increase the access to housing, to make it easier for folks who may have been evicted, who may have suffered a health issue that resulted in them, um, you know, getting some negative rental history or things like that. We really were, um, our, our hands are tied in some ways in what we can do now locally.
0: You're listening to a forum on homelessness in Dane County, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are State Journal reporters Dean Moseman and Doug Erickson and Chief Photographer Steve Apps, along with Heidi Wegleitner, Dane County Board Supervisor, and a public interest attorney representing low-income tenants in eviction cases and subsidized housing disputes.
4: They also have enacted laws at the state level that make it easier to get folks out. Now there's the option of giving a five-day no right to cure notice for anyone, um, any tenant accused of um, criminal activity, violent criminal activity, drug-related criminal activity, or criminal activity that threatens the health and safety of of neighbors or uh, property managers and things like that. Um, so you don't get a chance to fix it. There's no requirement that you this criminal activity be you know, result in any charges or be substantiated or any kind of evidentiary requirement before that eviction um, gets filed. So we're seeing folks who are getting these notices because of an alleged disturbance, who haven't been cited for any disturbance. Um, we're seeing folks who have had um, people, um, crime occur like in the street in front of their house, but you know, not anyone in the household that that um, committed that crime but someone they thought was associated with the household, thought them to be a guest. Um, so a lot of kind of unintended consequences of um, legislation kind of being pushed through pretty quickly um, without uh, kind of thinking through what, what does this mean? What does this mean for our homeless population? What does this mean for the limited resources we have to, to shelter folks, to get folks back into housing? Um, We know it's much more expensive to have people homeless than it is to provide them housing. And so we need to look at how these policies, um, you know, drive some of this homelessness problem. The good news is that... um, there's a there's a growing community um, awareness about the problem. This week, I was on the radio. I was at another panel. I'm on a panel today. Of course, you know, education and community awareness, in and of itself, isn't going to change anything. But it's a really important first step. And and this has been growing because of folks who were camping outside and starting to show up for meetings and advocating for themselves to be seen as human beings with the right to be able to get a shower and wash their clothes and have some human dignity while trying to survive on the streets. So um, I think both the city of Madison and and Dane County have identified um, ending homelessness and and expanding housing opportunity and creating new housing as a top priority for local government. And that's a really great thing. Um, We need to translate that priority and and a lot of the talking that's going on into real action and a priority that is reflected in terms of our budget right Um, that's one thing we can do locally is is dedicate those resources um, um, that are needed to deal with the problem so what is working is the new investments in affordable housing the city of Madison the mayor um, for the last few years has has um, you know dedicated significant capital funding towards the creation of affordable Rental housing and permanent supported housing. The county created an affordable housing development fund and have, has committed two million dollars over the course of each of four years, plus an additional million that we work on jointly with the city of Madison to um, provide permanent supported housing. We find we opened the first permanent joint city county funded permanent supported housing at Rethke Terrace. Um, And this is absolutely a a stunning success. Um, This is what we need to do. 60 new units. Um, And we're tracking, you know, the number of people that are homeless and the number of homeless people that were getting into housing. And in uh, June and July, when Rethke opened and and we were leasing, that was leasing up, you just saw, you know, all these great numbers of folks getting into housing because guess what? We created the units and we were able... To get that done and the um, city was also wise to invest in street outreach. So folks who were downtown, folks who were um, homeless and on the streets, chronically homeless people who've been homeless for a long time, um, who, you know, some of them costing the city a lot of money in uh, law enforcement and all of us in emergency room care and um, in and out of uh, jail sometimes, some of those folks are now in housing. Um, Housing Initiatives is a fantastic um, local organization that um, serves the folks with serious and persistent mental illness and and they are are creating new units and taking units that are um, in the community already but buying up property and renovating them and housing folks who are mentally ill and um, I can't say enough about about their good work. How are we getting folks into these housing? One is we're creating as a homeless services consortium, a by name list. That means that we have some kind of accountability to the actual individuals in our community who are homeless. So everybody who is homeless, we try to assess their vulnerability on the street and that combined with the length of time they've been homeless gives them a score and a placement on a prioritized list for housing in Dane County. And every week, there are folks who work in these housing programs and work with homeless people meeting to talk about trying to get match folks on the top of that list into units that have been identified in the community that would suit their needs. So folks at the top of the list with really high scores need that permanent supported housing, need that Refke Terrace. And we have an individuals list and a family list. Um, the individuals list um, has... 872 people on it okay the families list has 606 all right so you can see that while the Rethke Terrace the 60 units are at Rethke Terrace and the 45 that are gonna open at Tree Lane in 2018 um, while great and while you know um, are not nearly enough and that's just for those folks who are homeless right now Okay, so think about all the folks who are at risk of homelessness, right? The folks in the motels um, that Doug was talking about, um, if they're paying for that motel on their own, which many of them are, they don't even count as homeless in our federal numbers. They do for purposes of the school system because they have a different definition of homelessness, a a strange, frustrating, (laughs) and complicated federal government issue but they're not even counting them. And our official homeless numbers don't even count the folks who are doubled up on someone's floor or couch, okay? We know, um, as of the Dane County Housing Needs Assessment published in January of 2015 by the um, University of Wisconsin, that there are 22,000 households in Dane County living in housing they can't afford. So that's, you know, paying more than 30% of their income towards rent. We know that um, 12,000 of those are paying more than half of their income towards rent, okay? So any kind of, I mean, that is a very slim margin, right? Your car breaks down, your hours get cut, you have a health crisis, your mom dies and you need to pitch in for the burial. All of those things um, put someone at risk. We see a lot of evictions, you know, um, kind of right before the, the holidays because folks um, are just penny, you know, pinching, and, and each month, you know, um, trying to prioritize their rent, and then, you know, MG&E gives them a notice saying you got to pay this this bill, or you're going to get cut off. Your electricity is going to get cut off. So they pay a, a backed up electric bill, and then they can't afford their rent the next month, barely getting by. So there's tens of thousands of of households at risk of homelessness. Um, and we know that you know, last year 2,000 people were, were evicted in Dane County, which is actually a little less than the year before. I think the reason it's less is because folks are understanding how um, serious it is once you get an eviction filed against you, it's on CCAP. Do folks know what CCAP is? It's an unofficial online court record system that is available to anyone. in in public you know available to the public anyone you can go search your neighbor and see if they've been evicted or charged with any crimes or got any speeding tickets and um, that's a way that a lot of landlords use um, you know to screen people out and it doesn't even the city of Madison even our public housing agencies deny people housing just because an eviction was filed it doesn't matter if it went to judgment it doesn't matter if any judge decided it was a proper claim for eviction it doesn't matter if they worked it out and they stayed there and paid up or whatever or the case got dismissed. A mere filing results in eviction. So folks get that termination notice and they're like, even if they're you know innocent and disputed or think it's retaliatory, they say, I can't risk having that eviction show up on CCAP because I'm never going to get housing again. So I'm going to move out before they file. So we know the folks actually displaced because of the threat of eviction is much higher than what we see in terms of the eviction numbers just based on filings in CCAP. So, you know, we need to increase our stock of affordable housing. We need to increase, majorly scale up the efforts. And we need, obviously, this local government can't do it alone. We need the help from the private sector to um, create these new units. And we need to fund the services, um, whether that's case management support for the, Chronically homeless men in shelter or the case management support for folks who need that additional support when they when they get into housing to to stabilize themselves Um, Or the tenant education or the legal services um, to make sure folks can stay in their homes and not become homeless. I Think there are a lot of things we can do locally It's gonna be hard You know, everyone's very uncertain of what's going to happen with our new federal administration. Um, You know, the consequences to what, you know, our successful approach to leveraging tax credit, uh, tax credits at the local level matched with local funding to create new units. The market's already um, taken a hit, the tax credit market, because of the new administration's talk about tax reform. So... So we're gonna have to increasingly be pulling together as a community and breaking down those silos because this issue affects all of us. And where we can, you know, come together. And and I have to say one thing that, another thing that's working really well is, there's some amazing volunteer energy out there. And there are some grassroots groups that go out every night to do homeless outreach. And I can't say enough about Tammy Fleming and the friends of the State Street family they now have five teams of outreach folks um, they do way more outreach than actually our funded outreach providers and they have got doctors and therapists and um, you know vets and social workers and you know business people all going out and getting to know folks just like Dean and and Doug and Steve did on the streets and making sure that they can survive because we know the life expectancy is like, you know, 20 years less for folks who have lived homelessness. So there's ways to get engaged, certainly showing up to the, to the government meetings and increasing um, the, the political will to have a real significant response to continue doing what we're doing, but doing more of it And understanding the urgency of the problem and also understanding that this will actually reduce costs in other areas of our local budgets.
0: You've been listening to Homelessness in Dane County, a forum sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers have been Wisconsin State Journal reporters Dean Moseman and Doug Erickson and Chief Photographer Steve Apps along with Heidi Wegleitner, Dane County Board Supervisor and a public interest attorney representing low-income tenants. The talk took place on January 14, 2017 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.